Good morning, friends. Let me add my welcome to Bob's. How precious it is to to come together and worship our Lord as one family. And as we were singing those songs, I just reminded myself, myself, God, you alone are God. You know, we we're surrounded by so many things happening in our world. I don't know if you've been reviewing the news recently and the things going on in the in the world with the war in Ukraine, the events of uh, Gaza and Israel. And I wonder, my friends, if you're feeling a little bit disturbed um, with everything that's going on. It's quite quite disturbing, isn't it? It's quite uneasy. Seems to me like the world is in a is in a place of desperate need, and not just the world. We look at our own country, and you know there are so many things happening. The the referendum that happened last week, and the fallout with that. And there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiousness. Where are we headed? What's going to happen tomorrow? And apart from what's going on in the outside, there's things happening in each of our lives, circumstances that are hard, trials, struggles, sorrows. But I want, before, you know, before we get into the passage, I just wanted to take a moment to encourage us that no matter what, no matter what circumstance we may be in, no matter what the future is going to be, we do not need to be anxious, for we stand on the firm foundation of Christ. We have a gospel that stands firm from one age to the other. I've always been refreshed by a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are his everlasting arms. Underneath, you know, whatever, you might feel the foundation cracking and the floor giving way. But underneath are his everlasting arms as he holds you up. An old hymn writer has written, when all things seem against us and drive us to despair. We know one gate is open, one year will hear our prayer. And as we come to open up God's word, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning, Lord, in much weakness, with much trembling, we recognize that we live in a world of desperate need. We recognize that we are a people in desperate need. And many of us come with hearts that may be disturbed, anxious, worried, hurting. Lord, you know the events that are happening around the world. You know, the things that are going on 
in each of our lives, Lord. The circumstances, the sorrows, the sighs. But we know, Lord, that you and you alone are God and you are in control. With all authority over heaven and earth. And we come humbly this morning to ask for your grace, for your mercy. Quieten our hearts, Lord. Open our minds and our ears. And may your Holy Spirit work powerfully through your word in the hearts of each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage for this morning, as we heard read, is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. And feel free to keep your Bibles open as we step into that passage. I've titled my sermon for today, Desperate Need meets the compassionate savior. Desperate need meets the compassionate savior. As we heard read to us in that passage, there are four pictures or four instances narrated uh, to us by Matthew of people in utter desperate need reaching out to Jesus for help. These are people from a variety of backgrounds. They are, you know, men, women, rich, poor, religious, not so religious, influential, not so influential. But they have one thing in common. They're in desperate need and they reach out to a compassionate Savior. We've been looking over the last few weeks at the Gospel of Matthew and we, you know, earlier this year, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And when Ray gave me um, this passage, he very helpfully noted that verse 35 in chapter 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. It's actually a very neat book end to chapter 4, verse 23. So if you read... Chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. So Jesus' ministry has well and truly begun. And by the time we get to chapter 9, Jesus has been preaching, teaching, um, healing the sick, the paralyzed, people with leprosy, the demon-possessed, and so on. And as he's been doing that, a large number of people are starting to follow him. Back in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 35, prophesied this. Let me read to you from verses um, 3 to 6. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And listen to this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. 
The years of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And as Jesus' ministry is progressing, he's demonstrating without a shadow of doubt that here is the Messiah, the one promised from God, the one prophesied by Isaiah. And many are turning in awe and putting their faith in Jesus. But as we've heard over the last couple of weeks, as uh, Nat and John were preaching, there are many religious leaders, many influential teachers, who instead of recognizing the Messiah, they know the scriptures, they know the prophecies, but they're so hardened that they want to do whatever it takes to discredit Jesus. And we've seen some of this um, in earlier in chapter 9. They accused Jesus of blaspheming. They accused Jesus of mingling with sinners. They're unwilling to accept him as the Messiah. And in the midst of this growing ministry, so there's one crowd that is you know, following Jesus and turning to him. There's another crowd that is opposing him and seeking to discredit him. We pick up our passage from verse 18. Let me read um, verses 18 and 19. While, he was, while Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. Now, this is the first picture of desperate need. There are four pictures. This is picture one. Now, we hear that he is a ruler. In the Gospel of Luke and Mark, we are given a little bit more detail about this man. His name is Jairus, and he is a religious ruler. You know, he's... uh, a ruler or a leader of the local synagogue, a well-regarded man, highly influential, and likely quite wealthy as well. Now, in the time and age in that particular context, the last thing you would do if you were an influential person in a public setting is to kneel before someone. Because that was a sign of demeaning yourself, a sign of humbling yourself before someone. It was not the done thing to do for a man of status, let alone a religious ruler. And in light of what I was saying earlier, this man is one of the members of the religious teachers who are actually in opposition to Jesus. And we find it all the more interesting that he comes there willing to publicly humble himself before Jesus, to kneel down before Jesus. He doesn't care who sees him. He doesn't care, you know, if his fellow peers and his fellow religious teachers see him kneeling before Jesus, the one whom 
they're opposing. And we hear you know, the, the desperate need, my daughter has just died. You know, Luke um, adds the detail that this is in fact his only daughter. His only daughter has just died. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke and Mark, we read that the daughter is at the point of death. Matthew is abbreviating things a bit for us. Um, but when we read the details given by Luke and Mark, the daughter is at the point of death, and as Jesus goes to Jairus' house, the daughter dies. But again, looking back to that man, you can see the sense of desperation. He's willing to give up all his you know, self-respect or whatever, Um, other people might think about him. He's not caring about any of that. And he throws himself down before Jesus. You know, my friends, when your child falls sick, now it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter what status you have doesn't matter what career goals you might have. You're willing to trade them all to get back your child's health, isn't it? What wouldn't you give up to get your daughter's life back? This is a desperate dad in desperate need. And in the furnace of this trial, he realizes how superficial all the trappings of wealth and status and power is. Now, he doesn't, it's interesting, he doesn't come to Jesus and give him his visiting card and say, look, I'm so-and-so. I've taught so many people. I've preached so many sermons. I've done so many things for the local synagogue. Please make yourself available. There's none of that. There's nothing about himself that he says. The only thing he says is, my daughter has died. Please come, put your hand on her, and she will live. A man in desperate need, but a man with faith that Jesus is the only one in that time of need who can save him. He falls at Jesus' feet in utter desperation. And we read that Jesus, without any question or comment, now Jesus got up, verse 19, and went with him, and so did his disciples. And now in the midst of this incident... We find ourselves almost interrupted with the second picture of desperate need. Let me read verses 20 to 21. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. 
She said to herself, if I only touch his clock, I will be healed. <clears throat> this is an amazing contrast from the first picture. You know, if Jairus was this influential religious ruler... This woman here is a literal nobody in the eyes of society. And it's, it's amazing how this, these two pictures are brought together at this point in the narrative. Now, in a curious parallel to the first picture, the woman has been bleeding for 12 years, which is the age of Jairus' daughter that's given to us from the other Gospels. For 12 years, she's been struggling with a condition uh, that's left her bleeding. Now, commentators tell us that she could have been suffering from some sort of fibroid tumor which is causing her bleeding. But I want, for just one moment, my friends, to, to pause at that point. Now, we read that verse, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him, and we just move on. You know, the Bible records the facts for us. But take a moment to think of what she's gone through in those 12 years. There's 12 years of physical pain, of discomfort, of a constant sense of tiredness, fatigue. Think about the emotional toll on her health. 12 years of Struggling with this sense of discouragement and discomfort. But above and beyond that, there's something more. This woman, according to Old Testament law, is ceremonially unclean. Let me read to you from uh, Leviticus chapter 15. When a, woman, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Whoever touches them will be unclean. Do you realize that, my friend? This is a woman who is almost in a permanent state of uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness. She's cut off from her family, from her friends, from the privilege of worshipping in the temple. She's, in a, in, in a sense, almost like a leper, socially outcast. She's endured it for 12 years. And add to that the stigma of sin. Because in, the, in that time, the religious teachers used to say that if you're struggling with a disease, it's because you've sinned and God's curse is on you. Physically, emotionally, 
spiritually she's sitting there with this burden on her struggling under this enormous sense of guilt and shame and um, gospel of mark mark even tells us she's been to many doctors and spent all her money without a cure in fact mark tells us she's even worse no money no status no prospects unclean no hope a woman in utter desperate need what a complete contrast to jeris it's fascinating isn't it those two pictures put together for us but in the midst of that crowd with everyone pressing around her you know she's literally a nobody we don't even know her name it's not recorded for us but in the midst of that jesus stops and makes time for her now i don't know my friends if you have ever felt like a nobody perhaps you know you haven't you feel like i haven't i haven't been educated enough i don't have a good job i'm not influential perhaps you've been put down by others perhaps you've been put down by your own family members and how hard that is when your own family disregard you mistreat you because they think you you know you're not good enough treated as just an insignificant nobody and i point to you the care the love that our savior shows to this woman in the midst of all those people he stops matthew again doesn't give us the details but when she touched jesus's cloak she knew she's making jesus ceremonially unclean and jesus at this point he stops and says who touched me that's recorded for us in the other gospel accounts who touched me and at that point you can imagine the tension in that moment you know her pulse racing her heart racing her palms sweating i wonder if you've ever been in that situation i i can remember a couple of times at school when i was uh, caught doing something i shouldn't have been doing and i wonder if you've been in that situation where you feel the eyes of the crowd on you she knew by touching jesus she was making jesus ceremonially ceremonially unclean she knows she's now stopping jesus from going to jerus's house jerus is this influential leader the religious ruler she is this literal nobody and mark records she came trembling with fear and fell at jesus's feet she was expecting a tongue lashing i'm sure and i wonder if that's how other religious leaders would have spoken to her 
Go away. Don't come near us. You're unclean. Back away. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. She was expecting to be publicly humiliated. And she meets a compassionate Savior who shows her love. Now, I didn't realize this before I began preparing, but this is the only woman recorded for us in Scripture to whom Jesus used the address, Daughter. Take heart, daughter. You are not a nobody. You are not insignificant. You are my daughter, the daughter of the Most High, in the midst of that crowd. With everyone, everyone's eyes looking at this woman, the woman to whom we don't even know her name. Jesus publicly makes certain that everyone knows that she is his daughter. And not just that, that she has been healed from her illness. That no one may point fingers at her and say she's unclean anymore. What a saviour we have. As one writer puts it, she came trembling. She left triumphing. Desperate need meets a compassionate Savior. But we return briefly to our first picture. Now, Jairus, I wonder what Jairus is doing as Jesus stops to talk to this woman. He's just come to Jesus and said, my daughter's at the point of death. Jesus gets up and then he stops for this woman. Now, I wonder if I was in Jairus' shoes. I'd probably be fiddling with my wristwatch. Jesus, what's happening? We need to get a move on. I don't know if they wore wristwatches then. Maybe he was carrying a sundial. <laughs> but you can expect him <clears throat> clearing his throat, tapping his feet. I wonder if there's a lesson for us in that, my friends. Jesus is not to be dictated to. You know, we want God to do everything in our time, in our way. Lord, you know what to do. It's quite evident. Just get it done quickly. Come on, Lord. But God is God. And we need to remember that and remind ourselves of that. He knows what to do and when to do it. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And sometimes when we feel like, you know, God is dragging his feet or God is not doing what he should be doing, let's remind ourselves that God is the Lord of heaven and earth who knows the end from the beginning. And we are not here to give advice to him. 
He is our God. He does all things in his time, in his way. And in verses 23 to 26, Jesus once again demonstrates his mighty power and his amazing compassion as he touched the little girl by the hand and she got up. Now again, commentators note that by touching the corpse, Jesus was making himself ceremonially unclean again. But this is a Savior who is willing and able to reach out in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our humanity, in the midst of our helplessness, to reach out and to touch us and restore us. The house of mourning was turned into a house of joy and gladness. Jesus gives us, you know, just a little glimpse into his power and the coming resurrection, you know, and that last day in the twinkling of an eye when at his voice those who are dead in Christ will be raised to new life with new resurrected bodies to stand perfected at his presence. No more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. With joy, when even the last enemy death is completely destroyed. We turn our attention to the next picture in verses 27 onwards, the next picture of desperate hope, sorry, desperate need. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Again, two men in utter desperate need. You know, men for whom physically the world was utterly dark. You know, in, in our day, in our age, even with all the benefits we have, you know, we have the Royal Society for Blind, we have the, you know, the Braille, we have guide dogs, we have medical services, all of that. It is still incredibly hard and challenging to live in this world as a blind person. But back in that day, in that age, if you were blind, unless you belonged to a really well-off family, you were pretty much thrown out into the streets and you had to fend for yourself. Literally at the mercy of others. Groping in the darkness. Struggling to survive. Again, nobody's... These are literal nobodies in the eyes of society. And yet, they follow and kept on following Jesus. We read that they followed Jesus even as he went indoors. I don't know how they, they did that, but they were unwilling to give up. They followed and kept following. Listen to the words they said. Have mercy on us Son of David, son of David. That is no ordinary address. 
that is the specific term for the Messiah. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read of the promise given to King David that one day his son, one born in his lineage, will establish a kingdom forever. The son of David, the Messiah. It's incredibly ironic that these men who never saw a single miracle of Jesus with their eyes recognized that they were in the presence of the Holy One of God. And what a contrast that the teachers and the Pharisees and the religious rulers who could physically see what Jesus was doing who knew the scriptures, who knew what was promised to David, who knew what Isaiah had prophesied, refused to recognize the one who stood in their midst. The Bible tells us God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. Jesus' response to them is incredibly important. Verse 29. He touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. Now, some people have interpreted that to mean, you know, it's, it all depends on how much faith you have. The more faith you have, the more miracles. As if somehow... God is constrained by our weakness or our lack of faith. It's not the amount of faith, but the object of our faith that matters. And these men, in their utter desperate need, in their desperation, their faith was in one person, the Son of God, the Son of David. And they were willing to do what it takes to follow him, to cry out to him, and to no one else. And to that faith, Christ shows mercy and reaches out to them and heals them. Again, desperate need meets the compassionate Savior. The final picture Verses 32 to 33. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. You know, again, my friends, we... We can read that, that's just one verse, a man who had been demon-possessed and could not talk, and we move on. Take a moment to reflect. I don't know how long this man had been demon-possessed. I don't know how long he'd struggled, he'd suffered the agonies of torture, of torment, of oppression. 
And to, and to top it all, he couldn't even share the suffering that was going on with someone else. He couldn't even open his mouth to talk about it. I wonder, I just wonder if with just his eyes, with the anguish in his eyes, he screamed out louder than those two blind men. To Jesus, have mercy on me. Helpless, desperate, mute. He looked to the only one who could help. And both he and the crowd were left amazed by the power of Jesus, by the compassion of Jesus. Four pictures, my friends, four pictures of desperate need. Four people, sorry, four pictures of people from different backgrounds, different problems, yet one Savior, one Redeemer. Now, the pictures of healing, these miracles, are meant for us as signposts, as markers. Firstly, to prove without a shadow of doubt that here is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, the one sent to us from God. But secondly, to look beyond the physical to the spiritual. You know, all these men and women in, in these pictures, you know, they eventually they fell sick. Eventually they all died. Jesus didn't come to merely give them some temporary relief or temporary healing. There's something greater he came for. Let me read again, remind you again of Isaiah's prophecy. Your God will come. He will come to save you. And let me remind you of the prophecy given by the angel of the Lord to Joseph at the time when Jesus was conceived. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus hasn't come merely to, to give us temporary respite from sickness, but to save us from our sins. Just like the people, those desperate people in those pictures, every one of us here today, we stand guilty in our sin before a holy God without Christ. We know the way sin has ravaged our lives, damaged our relationships. Just like the men and women in these pictures, we know, don't we, how sin has blinded our eyes. We, you know, groping in the darkness of evil, left us unclean, dead in our transgressions. 
like the like that man who was captive to the demon we stand captive bound enslaved by sin and we wrestle with our guilt and our shame you know my friends i was thinking we might look okay on the outside but like that man that demon possessed man who could not speak perhaps we're struggling with guilt and shame and burdens that we are unable to share with anyone else around us perhaps like that poor woman we've tried this remedy and that we've we've gone to every doctor spiritual in a spiritual sense we've tried to distract ourselves with entertainment and career goals and religious traditions and psychology and holidays and whatever else but none of that has worked someone's put it so aptly the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and we each one of us have a heart that is corrupted that is damaged by sin now we we think today don't we we're so advanced scientifically technologically emotionally we know this we know that we liberated men and women of the 21st century are we here we are standing at the brink of world war 3 we can't even live in peace with one another how utterly desperate how utterly useless and in our desperate need my friends it is my privilege to point you and i to the only one who stands as our savior as our messiah to redeem to restore to heal from our guilt from our shame from our uncleanness he took on our uncleanness our sin our guilt our shame He bore the wrath of God that was meant for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That desperate sinners like you and I might know joy and life, have spiritual sight, freedom from guilt and the bondage of sin and eternal fellowship with the father my friends i don't know where you are this morning perhaps you see yourselves in one of those pictures or perhaps you think you know it's all very well nice story interesting story but i'm okay i'm fine i don't need this jesus i've got my career i've got my this i've got my that my family's all well thank you but i'm all good You know, as I was preparing, I thought initially there were four desperate pictures, but there is one more desperate picture. Let me read to you verses 33 and 34. When the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, "Nothing like this has been seen in Israel." Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, 
It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. These were the teachers of the law. The ones who had memorized the prophecies. And they say, it is by the prince of demons. And these men, such men, accused Jesus of blasphemy. What an irony. They saw, they heard, they rejected. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, not I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now these men thought they were okay. They thought they were fine. They were on the precipice of God's wrath, but they blindfolded themselves with their own self-righteousness, with their own external religious activities. How utterly tragic. Perhaps, as I was thinking of that, this is the most desperate picture of all. At least the other men and women, they knew their own desperation, and they reached out to a compassionate Savior. These men hardened by their own self-righteousness, thought they were okay, utterly oblivious to their desperate need. My friends, I pray this morning that if you see your desperate need, I hope that unlike these Pharisees, but like those blind men, if you see your desperate need, Cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us, have mercy on me. And it is my privilege to assure you that you need not fear. Though your sins be as scarlet, he will wash them whiter than snow. He will call you my son, my daughter. You once were lost, but now are found. Come and receive the love of your Savior. I want to finish with these words from a well-loved hymn by Charlotte Elliott. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we have seen these people in utter desperate need. Lord, you know our need. You know how desperate we are without you. And this morning, Lord, for each one of us, I pray that we look with eyes, not of flesh, but with eyes of spirit, that we look to you for help, Lord, in our need. You are the only one who can rescue us. 
You're the only one who can save us in this time of desperate need. Just as Jairus, just as that woman fell at your feet, Lord, we fall at your feet. Son of David, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.